Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associates Health and Wellness Newsletter. I am your host, Dr. M, and this is Volume 13, Issue Number 13. This corresponds to the week of March 13th, 2023. So, the free thoughts this week are this. To be in nature with an animal is a beautiful way to spend a day. My dog Coco and I recently spent the day hiking up and around Stone Mountain in North Carolina. We had the pleasure of seeing beautiful 80-foot waterfalls, panoramic vistas, and we left there feeling both happy and alive. So get out there with any furry friend or human friend, if you want, for that matter, and enjoy the experiences of life wherever you are. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful country. It's a beautiful day. The podcast that corresponds with this week is number 41, Pam Staples, PhD. We talked a lot about teenage mental health. She is a certified relational life coach and a retired psychologist who is absolutely incredible. So if you want to learn anything about parenting teenagers, dial it in. Excellent. Number 41. You'll love her. She's great. So this week, we're going to talk about cholesterol, part four, acne, and there's also a recipe of the week. If you want the song of the week, it's Wild Horses by The Sundays. Originally a song written by the Rolling Stones, but The Sundays version is excellent as well. Also, the link is in the newsletter podcast, I mean the newsletter uh, on the website. So, coronaviruses are up, our updates are really on hold for now. There's nothing really going on of interest. So, I'm just going to sort of talk about what strains are happening and that's about it. So, as of March 11th, the variants that are happening right now is mostly XBB 1.5. 90% 90% of the cases, and then 5% is BQ1.1, and XBB and BQ.1 make up the rest. So XBB1.5 is pretty much the only player now in the COVID space, and we've been there for many weeks, and it's been on a stable run. Nothing really happening. Steady state with disease risk and morbidity. Essentially, this is becoming a common cold, as we had thought, and we're not seeing anything else. North Carolina's Department of Health and Human Services Website notes a flatline of COVID-associated hospital ICU cases for almost a year now. Volumes are not changing despite the variant shifts. So in my opinion, you know, we are in a place where there's no real worry regarding risk and vaccines and long-term outcomes. I find no evidence that vaccines are useful for anyone outside of a high-risk group. Children over two years of age absolutely have no scientific need to vaccinate once they've been naturally infected. Between six months because you cannot vaccine under the age of six months, and two years of age is a parent's choice based on the very, very, very small but real risk of a negative outcome. High-risk individuals should always consider vaccinating on a biannual basis or based on the most current data and in conversation with their physician or provider. So, cholesterol lipid hypothesis part four. Endothelial dysfunction. How does the artery clog? Let's recap a little bit. One, cholesterol and lipoproteins are significant and necessary for pathology to develop, but not the only driver in heart disease and atherosclerosis. I believe that inflammation is the root cause of the problem driving the lipid imbalance and plaque formation. Two, lipoproteins are produced and recycled every day in order to deliver energy to tissues around the body via triglycerides and are a part of the ancient innate immune system. They are primed and ready to fight all systemic pathogens that are trying to hurt us. Three, 
Your genetic makeup may dictate whether you produce and or recycle more cholesterol lipoproteins than are advantageous in our current environment. Okay, this section is a little tricky. There's a lot of science here. I apologize in advance, but as always, I think the science is necessary to convey the data and the understanding that we need. I really can't find a way to tell the story without getting into these pieces, so here we go. Let's look at plumbing. The artery, as discussed last week, has an endothelial lining made up of layered thin cells that lay on top of a muscle layer, which lays on top of connective tissue layer, making the tube complete. This area is where the dysfunction leads to a heart attack. The process starts at the earliest ages. Teenagers have early signs of endothelial dysfunction long before the blood pressure is high or other markers are seen. This process is believed to start at birth and even possibly in utero. According to Dr. Houston, the process has begun because of chemical stressors and epigenetic forces, oxidative stress, inflammation, and autoimmune dysfunction initiate and propagate high blood pressure and cardiovascular disease. As we discussed last week, oxidative stress and inflammation begin in the body when we consume poor quality food and are exposed to toxins in and infections, initiating chemical reactions in the gut and bloodstream that lead to damage. During the 1960s, the authors of the Seven Country Study epidemiologically analyzed the mortality risk of thousands of Europeans based on cholesterol levels. They found that the mortality risk was five times higher in those people that consumed the most saturated fat, smoked, and had the lowest bioflavonoid levels of antioxidant foods consumed. A common feature of the traditional diet amongst populations in the Mediterranean region is relatively high dietary intake of vegetables, fruits, legumes, whole grains, monounsaturated fats, and nuts, followed by moderate consumption of fish, dairy products, mainly cheese and yogurt, alcohol, and low consumption of red and processed meats. In their mind, the cholesterol level was dietarily driven and associated with heart disease. However, cigarette smoking and antioxidant loads are unrelated to pathways of cholesterol production, yet are associated with heart disease. Therefore, there must be more to this story. Couple this to the fact that we know that less than 50% of heart attack victims have abnormal cholesterol levels at the time of the first event, leading us to assume that there are other significant causes of disease other than just abnormal cholesterol levels. This is my contention. Adults with type 2 diabetes mellitus are two to four times more likely to die from a heart attack than non-diabetics and can be used as a study population for risk. Something about the disease diabetes has to play a role in the genesis and propagation of coronary artery narrowing and ultimately closure. The current thought is that whatever causes diabetes causes cholesterol and lipoprotein abnormalities, which ultimately leads to heart disease. Let's start with the foods that are known to be associated with obesity and diabetes development saturated and trans fats, refined sugar, and refined flour. People who consume large volumes of refined flour and sugar stimulate the hormones insulin and leptin to upregulate genes related to lipid and glucose metabolism and storage. There's an increase in the liver-produced enzyme HMG-CoA reductase, among others, making more cholesterol and, therefore, lipoproteins to carry the energy produced in these lipoprotein cars. The increased insulin simultaneously pushes the excess glucose molecules into fat cells to be stored as triglycerides, engorging them in the liver and in peripheral adipose tissue as storage mechanism. This is a good thing if you are trying to survive famine or a winter. 
These fat cells are metabolically active, releasing pro-inflammatory chemicals locally and systemically that increase cellular insulin receptor signaling dysfunction. The signaling defect over time worsens, making insulin less active at the cell surface, trapping glucose in the bloodstream, beginning the diabetic state. The fat cells continue to become engorged unchecked, making us appear overweight and fattening our livers. These engorged and inflamed fat cells become oxidized, glycated, and targeted by the immune system for death because the immune system perceives them as damaged cells. This is key point number one. Inflamed fat cells and damaged lipoproteins are now perceived by the immune system as bad guys and need to be dealt with. Now the question is, where is the lipoprotein? If it is in the heart, we will have the genesis of coronary artery disease. A professional immune cell called a macrophage, which is known for being able to swallow, phage, macro being bigger, they're fine in the artery wall. They can swallow small, dense, oxidized, and inflamed lipoproteins called LDL, low-density lipoproteins, that have slipped into the endothelial lining. This macrophage LDL cell is now called a foam cell. This foam cell continues to swallow more small LDL particles, becoming engorged in dysfunction, releasing even more inflammatory danger signals that start a local chemical reaction via the immune system that leads to further damage of the artery wall and then the development of a fibrous plaque to protect the area from further damage. The body has a propensity to wall off things it doesn't like. So if there's inflammation going on, you're going to see fibrous plaques build up to protect it. And actually, when you look at these fibrous plaques, they're like rings on a tree. You can tell the age of a plaque based on those rings. Dr. Ethan Weiss, who will be a future podcast guest, he has talked about this. So key point number two, if this process that we're talking about is present, the immune system will do its job and clear the dysfunctional, inflamed, dislocated foam cell and restore balance to the heart vessel. However, if the pressures that started the problem in the first place persist long-term, you now have a chronic inflammatory problem in a critical place in the body. This is not good. This is exactly what happens to humans that consume a standard American processed food, calorie-rich, and nutrient-poor diet while being sedentary, toxin-exposed, and mentally stressed. Crisis. Other than poor quality refined sugars, now let us add in the certain dietary fats that get incorporated into our cell membranes. The concerning ones are the chemically manufactured trans fats, saturated fats, and vegetable-based polyunsaturated omega-6 fats called PUFA. Trans fats are now banned. That's a good thing. They're gone. They're not causing a lot of trouble anymore. But let's focus on the other ones briefly. Saturated fats that are noted to be a risk in the seven-country study are known to increase inflammatory molecules in the bloodstream. They are derived from animal products and are solid at room temperature. Examples include milk, butter, corn-fed beef, coconut oil, and others. They also increase free-floating fatty acids around in the bloodstream, which are directly related to dysfunctional insulin receptor signaling. The more saturated fat that you consume, the more you will challenge your system from an inflammation perspective. This is not to say that saturated fats are all bad. They are not. It is the volume and what they're coming along with. That is the problem in my mind. The polyunsaturated omega-6 fats called PUFAs are primarily derived from the oils of soybeans, corn, rapeseed, or canola oil, and are liquid at room temperature and when cool. They are found in our fryers and junk foods and unhealthy primarily because they have unstable chemical structures that high heat will break and when exposed to peroxidants become altered to an oxygen radicalized fat like a lipid peroxide or oxidized LDL 
cholesterol. Not a good thing for the immune system. These oxidized free fatty acids damage the cell membranes, mitochondrial energy production centers, and cell signaling molecules leading to cell weakness and poor information transfer. This is not good on many levels. So if I recap, in an obese person or somebody who carries excess weight gain, we have a scenario where a fat cell has been stuffed by dietary sugar excess and the cell membrane is damaged by oxidized free fatty acids. These free fatty acids making it an immune reactive adipocyte that is releasing pro-inflammatory chemicals systemically. As the lipoproteins increase in the bloodstream to compensate for the excess free fatty acids, a concentration gradient forms, allowing a small dense LDL particle to slip into the heart vessel wall where it can be oxidized and engulfed by a professional macrophage forming a foam cell. If the foam cell is not appropriately cleared because of the chronic systemic inflammatory lipid onslaught, you have the nidus for an inflamed area that has invaded into the artery wall. Thus, I believe that the inflammation is a major driver of persistent damage to the heart vessel, not the actual cholesterol itself. Again, this is not to say that lipid lowering is a useless medical idea. It absolutely has benefit in those at-risk individuals, especially those folks that are unwilling to make lifestyle changes that could benefit them, or those who have major genetic risk factors that are a problem in modern, our modern country. For me, the bigger piece of the pie is the inflammation that drives the whole process. Attack all sides of the cardiovascular risk program, especially the drivers of inflammation based on lifestyle, cho lifestyle choices. And then medicine may not be necessary at all. And wouldn't that be beautiful? We'll continue on with part five next week. Section two, acne. Acne is inflammatory disorder of the pilosebaceous unit that looks like an inflamed papule. Acne is two times higher in patients with metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance than control individuals. In a study looking at 600,000 adolescents, the researchers found that obesity is inversely associated with acne in a dose-dependent manner. Why would this be? Well, as always, we need to dive into the immunobiology of the skin health. When a person is ill with metabolic syndrome, they have overactive immune cells that are triggered by the cytokines being released from adipocytes, as well as dysregulated hormonal activity. Let us look at the hormones first. It is well known that testosterone is a major driver of acne, as noted in most teen males. Estrogen, on the other hand, has a protective effect with increased aromatase activity, an enzyme that converts testosterone to estradiol. Estrogen itself is an antiandrogenic by inhibiting sebum release and reduces pro-inflammatory immune activation, obesity, metabolic syndrome, and the causative association of Western diets are reported to reduce the conversion of testosterone to the more physiologically active dihydrotestosterone by suppressing the activity of the enzyme 5-alpha reductase 2. The second piece of the puzzle is the colonization of the sebaceous gland by QT bacterium acnes, which triggers the innate immune system to locally recruit inflammasomes and other immune cells to inflame the area. We see this pathophysiologically as an inflamed red-white sebum-filled acne lesion. The more bacteria present, the more the area will inflame, thus controlling the growth and colonization of the facial skin by QT bacterium acnes. Bacteria is a main route to disease reduction. Excessive volumes of adipocytes in overweight individuals release immune-promoting cytokines real-time, leading to more inflammation, worsening the responses above. What about milk? Dairy has been used for decades as a source of high-quality protein for muscle growth and secondarily athletic benefits. Unfortunately, many Americans are challenged by the increased frequency of allergy and sensitivity to dairy protein casein. 
also known as the milk curd, promoting many to switch to pure whey dairy-based protein supplements for growth of muscle. Teenage boys are especially interested in muscle growth and they comprise the lion's share of the whey protein supplement sales in youth. There are now multiple studies showing that whey protein powder uses, uh, used can cause moderate to severe teenage acne in certain susceptible individuals. I have had many patients in clinic develop cystic acne. As soon as we stop the dairy consumption and the whey protein, it all goes away. No medicines needed. Perfect answer. The mechanism causing the acne appears to be related to insulin and insulinic growth factor 1, otherwise known as IGF-1. These hormonal pathways are associated with many metabolic and physiologic abnormalities when they are altered. Insulin is the main hormone driving glucose sugar balance in the body and ultimately the deposition of fat. IGF-1 structurally looks like insulin and has growth and anabolic effects in the body. Diets rich in refined flour and sugar also promote excess insulin activity, inflammation, and abnormal metabolism highlighted by diseases like polycystic ovary syndrome, acne, diabetes, coronary disease, and more. Naturally, IGF-1 production peaks during puberty, potentially accounting for some normal effects of teenagers. Thus, it would make sense that flooding the body with a cow's milk-based diet or supplement that increases IGF-1 levels in genetically susceptible individuals will worsen the acne issue. The key here is genetically susceptible, as not all teens suffer milk allergy intolerance or acne-based reactions from the consumption. Not all the same. We have to treat patients as ends of one. How are we different? How do we respond? Intermittent fasting has been shown to reduce IGF-1, which could be beneficial to the teens with bad acne. Fasting is known to have many benefits to the human species. Reducing flour and refined sugar consumption will have a beneficial effect reducing insulin levels, inflammation, and metabolic derangements. Take home point number one. If you know a teen that is suffering from moderate to severe acne, ask if they are drinking a lot of milk or taking whey-based protein supplements. Recommend a trial off of a month and the answer to causation will appear or better yet disappear. Take home point two. Diet and lifestyle choices are critical to avoidance of acne medicines and needing treatment in the first place. Avoid processed flour and sugar-based foods will go a long way towards reducing the symptoms of acne. In the newsletter, you can see the links to Who Frontiers Endocrinology, SNAST Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology, Furlay Clinical Medicine, Morturana Self-Article, and many others. And finally, the recipe of the week in the podcast, uh, excuse me, in the newsletter link is St. Patrick's Day staple, corned beef and cabbage. Meal is tasty when made well and has quality nutrient profile, including vitamins K and C, as well as a lot of B12. All right, folks, that's it for this week. As always, hug those kids. Have a beautiful day. Now for disclaimer. The information provided in this newsletter audio cast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional, and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This audio cast newsletter does not constitute the formation of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.